Brothers and sisters, hear now the good news that Christ Jesus has done for you. You love God because he first loved you. We draw near before God because of his grace. We were not wise enough to be chosen. We were not righteous enough. We're rich enough. We were liars, thieves, adulterers, and idolaters. In short, we were sinners. Yet God showed grace by setting his love upon you and marking you out for his own possession. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you would be made new again. You were once not a people, but now you indeed are the people of God. He's brought you into his family. He's adopted you as his children. He's cleaned you up and washed you thoroughly inside and out. He's covered you with robes of righteousness and bedecked you as a glorious bride made ready for his son. All of this because he first loved you, and all of it is undeserved. So brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all of God's people say, Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in the prophet Malachi, chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says Yahweh of hosts. Then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings, and indeed I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says Yahweh of hosts. My covenant with them was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So we revered my name, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Yahweh of hosts. So I also have made you despise and abase before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? We'll turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And begin reading in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Not as, the, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is now greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he is nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and the Father, has, the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. If you would now turn to the back of your bulletin, we'll read together as a congregation. Psalm 72, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. Those that are attentive will know that I'm wearing a blue shirt this morning. So there's peace. Whenever I make remarks like that, my wife gets a lot of flack. It's not her fault. It's hard being in the family of the one that publicly puts you on display week after week. So have a little mercy. This morning we're back in Colossians. I was planning on doing a week in Matthew 18, and I, I'm not satisfied with my thoughts there. So what we're going to do, we're, we're coming back to Colossians, and... The goal this week is to cover one verse, so I have lofty goals. Last night in our study, we did 76 verses, so we should be done rather quickly. The subject that God is calling us to look at today is peace. And this is not completely distinct from what we talked about last week, forgiveness, reconciliation. Peace, peace is the outworking of that. But Paul says something peculiar in chapter 3 in that he, he says, let peace, and this is a third 
person imperative construction, meaning the command is to the peace. Let peace rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. It seems simple enough, but after wrestling with Matthew 18, I proceeded to wrestle with this verse, and I wrestled all through last night without much peace. Because at the heart of this, we have this command, let peace rule, and not just any peace, but the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then specifically, you were called to this in one body. Now, on the surface, that's very simple. But when you think about how to apply that kind of peace and what it means to rule and what the fuller definition of the peace of Christ is, it's a little harder for us to grasp, especially when we get in the, the, the tangle of knots of conflict. Then we, we rarely ever have eyes to see clearly at that point. So the goal here is, as we're, we're progressing very slowly in Colossians, to take this verse and to consider what is Paul calling us as a church to? Remember that this, this young church, they're fruitful, they're bearing fruit, they're growing in knowledge. Paul is warning them, watch out how you walk. Don't be deceived by any empty philosophy. Don't be taken in by, by those that are calling for judges of Sabbath days and festivals and new moons, by those that would disqualify you by setting your eyes on visions of angels and entering in based on some, some kind of false humility, but instead fix your eyes on Jesus. And so read with me one more time. I promise we're going to finish chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 by next week. So we'll, we'll be done with it then. But listen one more time to what Paul has to say in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then... You have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the above things, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on those above things, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death the Limbs on the earth, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. For it's on account of these things that the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Shameful words. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old man with his practices and you've put on the new man who's being made new in knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In that new man there is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is no circumcised, there is no uncircumcised, there is no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so... As those who have been chosen of God, holy, loved, put on guts of mercy, kindness, lowliness of mind that yields gentleness and patience in dealing with one another, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And on all these, love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. If you would pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning and we ask once again that you would give us ears to hear your word, that you would bore them out. We want to be good servants, to hear it from you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so help us to hear and to heed, to understand now so that we have our mind fixed on what you ask of us. And Lord, we pray that you would bring us forward then to that prize for which you've made us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't think I've given you a a full outline of this section of chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, even though we've been in the middle of it for a number of weeks now. The central part, and I have mentioned this, the central part of of this section is from verses 9 through 11, do not lie to one another, but particularly the reason why is at the center, because you have put on this new man and you have taken off that old man. So the center to all that Paul is telling us is you are new. You're done with the old man, he's put off. You've put on this new man In baptism, you're united with Christ. His name rests upon you. You are new. And furthermore, you are being made new. You're being made new unto a knowledge according to the image of the one who created you such that you all are one. Christ is all of us together. Christ has incorporated us as one in his body and he indwells us. Christ is all in all. And flowing out from that, then we have the command of the clothing. Take off, put to death, the clothing that was with the old man, the old man's clothes, which was sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and the other form of it, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and words that are intended to tear down and hurt. All of those we are putting off. We used to wear them, we used to walk in them, we used to live in them, but we're putting them to death, we're taking them off, and we're putting on guts of mercy which means that we now deal with one another with compassion and kindness, making ourselves useful to our brothers that are in pain. We have a lowliness of mind. We're putting on that lowliness of mind so that we deal with one another gently and patiently with this outworking then of forgiveness and putting up with one another, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven us. On on the other sides of this construction, so you, you, have, you have then at the center verses 9 through 11, and outside of it verses 5 through, 5 through 8 and 12 through 14, we have the taking off and the putting on, so this continuing practice 
in which you are the new man. You've been made alive as the new man. You take off and you put on. But outside of that, remember, we began this last year in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, with this command. If you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the above things. Now, all the way at the end of this section, Paul is telling us now, where do we fix our mind? What are those above things? And he wants us to think about them now. So if you look at verses 15 through 17, we have three statements, three commands. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So if you're listening, what you'll hear then is two parallel constructions. Verses 15 and 16, they run right alongside one another. There are these third person imperatives. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. In both of those things, we have the additional command. First, be thankful in verse 15. And then how do you do that? How do you let the word of Christ dwell? Well, with thankfulness. And then there's the where. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ richly dwell with thankfulness in your hearts. And then in verse 17, the way I would read this is whatever you do in word or deed. So verse 16 then is about word, the word. It richly dwells within you. It comes out in the form of singing with thankfulness before the Lord. And whatever you do in deed, that describes then more specifically the peace, how peace changes your actions. The peace of Christ changes your actions and, and, and rules or arbitrates in your hearts. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to try to cover verse 15 and, and perhaps the, the outworking in verse 17, and then next week we'll look at, at verse 16 and be done with this section. So what is peace? Our outline for today, we're just going to take these words and try to understand his command, starting with peace. There's an objective form of peace and there's a subjective form of peace, meaning there's one that's external to, to, to you, and you can think about this, the, the children's book definition is going to be the cessation of hostilities. I don't think that that's sufficient, but that's a starting point. Peace, peace means you're not at war, but it's not just a negative, a lack of a negative condition, it's more than that. So that's external to you, it's a, it's a fact. Whether you feel it or don't feel it, that kind of peace is objective, when the, when the disarmament comes in a war, it's, it's a statement. Now, you may not know it. You may still be bitter. You may still be angry. And you then don't have the subjective, the, the, the response to that external peace that has been applied. Uh, the other way can be true as well. They, sh they should go together. We should objectively be given peace. We are given peace by Christ. And then we're given to have a response of peace. But we can also have the feeling of peace without the objective peace. And I'll show you a bit about that as well. But what is peace? 
If you look through God's word, peace is described as a city. Peace is described as a house, as a king, as a river, as a table, as a covenant. Peace is what allows you to sleep at night. So remember the psalmist, he he says, I lay down and I sleep because you dwell with me in peace and safety. If you're in turmoil, and like like last night, I was in a bit of turmoil. Uh, I can judge that positively or negatively. Part of the turmoil is when I speak, I bear the responsibility of bearing the word of God. The other part of it, if I judge myself harshly, is I'm worried about what people think. And so there's this combined mix of turmoil and a lack of peace. I want to start then with our definition all the way back in Genesis 14. Genesis 14 describes a war between kings and Abraham Abraham at that time goes and he's victorious. And in Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17, after his victory, after his return from the defeat of Cheddar Leomar, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. So this is indeed about a war. And the war is over, and Abram comes back, and he meets then. God sends out to meet him, Melchizedek, whose name means the king of righteousness. And he is the king of of Shalem, which is the root out of which we get peace. So Jerusalem has has the, the implication of peace, but the root means more. There's completeness, there's wholeness, there's healing that comes with that peace. And so the king of righteousness comes out, and remember we said peace is like a king. Remember the prince of peace of Isaiah chapter 9. Peace is a city. Jerusalem is the city of peace. He comes from that city bearing peace and righteousness, and peace is a meal. He brings, he brings out bread and wine as the priest of the Most High God for Abram to, to eat. And then finally, peace here is a blessing. He blesses him with the blessing from God. Blessed be Abram of God Most High. And you can see all of these forms converging in which you have a city, a house, a king, a, a table, and a blessing at that table. The whole Old Testament converges on this this goal of peace. So just by way of reminder, flip forward then to Leviticus chapter 4. The sacrificial system was built around five, five major sacrifices, and they're sequential. They're sequential moving from the guilt offering when you have high-handed sin to the purification offering, the sin offering. So confessing, removing, ascending the burnt offering in which you lay your hand on the head of the animal and then the animal is burnt up and mingles with the glory cloud of God ascending into his presence. But the culmination, it's all driving towards peace. And so the peace offering is placed then on top of the sin offering 
and the ascension offering, then there is a peace offering. And without that peace offering, you've gone, your sins are forgiven, you've ascended, you're in the presence of the Most High, but you haven't reached the goal. And that goal is table fellowship with God. So with this particular offering, the man, uh, sorry, it's chapter 3. The man brings his peace offering, and in verse 2, he once again lays his hand on the head of the, of the offering. He's drawing near into the presence of God, and he slays it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Notice in this, you, you, slay, you slay your own animal. And Aaron's sons, this is verse 2, and the priest shall sprinkle the blood around the altar, and from the sacrifice of the peace offerings he shall present an offering by fire to Yahweh. The fat that covers the entrails, all the fat that's on the entrails. The two kidneys with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall offer it up in smoke. On the altar, on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood that's on the fire, it's, on, it's an offering, an ear bring by fire, of a soothing aroma to the Lord. If, it, if his offering... For a sacrifice of peace offerings to Yahweh is from the flock. He shall offer it, male or female, without defect. Let's skip down to verse 11. This is what he describes it as. Then the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as food, an offering by fire to Yahweh. So you take the animal, you kill it. The priest sprinkle the blood around the altar, and then the fat and the kidneys, the entrails, are, are heaped up and they're burnt in smoke on the altar before God, and it's God's food. In chapter 4, we don't find out what happens to the rest of it, but remember, a portion of that offering then goes to the priests in Leviticus 7, and the rest of it goes to the offerer. So this offering is unique in that you come before God, God eats, the priests eat, you eat, and remember that within those peace offerings, there's restrictions on how long you can keep it. You bring your priest offering before the Lord and, and you bring a, a, a goat or a cow, a bullock, and then you have to eat it right away. Depending on the kind of peace offering, it can only last till morning or, or you may have a couple days to eat of it. But remember that the intention here is fellowship. Your household eats, you invite your neighbors to eat, you proclaim the thanksgiving to God. And all together then, you experience in a meal fellowship with God. He eats, you eat, the priests eat, and there's unity. That sacrificial system teaches that this is the goal. Sitting down in the presence of the Lord and eating a meal with Him. Obviously, that's what we do. We confess our sins, we come into his presence, and he gives us then this peace. This peace, this peace is, is vertical, but it also is horizontal. It spreads out into those around us so that in the peace offering, your neighbors, your friends, your household ate and was glad with you.
That's where we're headed. If we go back to Colossians and look at verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So this peace which comes through a king in a city, in the house, at the table, starting to sound like a Dr. Seuss book. Now this peace that he's calling us to look at, to consider and meditate on, this peace specifically is of Christ. Well, what distinguishes the peace of Christ? Hyde read for us out of John chapter 14. And he read, he read to us the section where Jesus says to the disciples, These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your memory all that I said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So Jesus specifically then grants peace. This is in the, the this four chapters of Jesus' benediction as he departs from his disciples, and he's giving them the blessing of peace. And specifically, that peace is coming through the person of the Holy Spirit. So you notice in chapter 14, side by side, verses 26 and 27, he promises them the helper, the spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and comforts in the midst of our distress and pain and trouble. When Jesus is has gone and he's ascended to the Father where we're to set our minds. The Spirit is given and he'll teach us all things and he brings peace. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is the peace of Christ. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? There's an Old Testament reference here in which Jesus, Jesus is looking back and in the plan of God, he'd given to Aaron the benediction we often hear. Aaron raises his hands and he blesses the congregation as, as they go out. And he blesses them with the words, the Lord be gracious and kind to you. The Lord shine his face upon you and, and be gracious. The Lord look upon you and give you peace. It's a blessing of peace. And now Jesus is doing just that. So then in Luke 24, we see it, we see it repeated where Jesus once again raises his hands after he's ascended, after he's raised up from the cross and he blesses them with this same kind of blessing, and this blessing of peace, then we see it copied again and again and again throughout the New Testament. So as you read Paul's epistles or Peter's epistles, how do they begin? That peace that Jesus gave, my peace I give unto you. Almost all of the epistles begin that way. Grace and peace be to you from the Lord, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, issuing forth from from God himself, from the Father and from Jesus, we have then this combined gift of grace and peace. More specifically, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So in the context in which Paul is writing to the church at Colossae where there is potential trouble, 
between the Jews and the Greeks. The Judaizers are bringing this in. And Ephesians is a parallel epistle. And so he writes then in chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. He made both groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, the ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man, making, establishing, founding peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. So Paul tells us that Jesus is this peace, the gift that he gives when he proclaims peace upon his people. My peace I give unto you. He's giving the gift of himself. And think about Jesus in John 14 through 17. He he says it again in chapter 16. My peace I give unto you. He's headed to the cross in order to establish this peace. So as he departs, he gives them the blessing of peace, the very peace that he's creating that he's making on the cross. It's this, this is the peace of Christ. So it's a peace that's purchased, a peace that's won. It's a peace that's costly. And it's this peace that he calls us to, the one that Jesus gave freely. And of course, in the church at Colossae, this is very poignant. They have this division, the very the very large division between Jew and Gentile that has just been obliterated, Paul is reminding them, Jesus gave this peace. This is the peace of the anointed one. The purpose of the Messiah was come to come to bring this peace so that God and man can sit down at a table and eat. And not just God and Jew, not just God and Gentile, but God and man, the one new man, Christ, who is all and in all, may have peace and eat and rejoice together. When we come to Paul's command in Colossians, we need to emphasize that this is the peace that Jesus bought and paid for, that this is objective, external to us. It's it's done. We can't minimize it, but at the same time, we have to ask, what is Paul calling us to in this peace of Christ? What does it mean that the peace of Christ must rule in our hearts? Does this mean peace for everyone? peace for everyone here. We just, we just talked about the clothing of the new man, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. That means there's complaint, there's, there's conflict, and now he says, let the peace of Christ rule among you. That word rule is, it's not like a king ruling, so it's not that peace, the peace of Christ is set on a throne, he's given it and now it's enthroned. Rather, the word for, the word for rule is one we've come across already in the book of Colossians, and it's the, the idea of umpiring. Who's deciding who gets the prize? So if you t- would turn back to chapter 2 and look in verse 18. Paul uses this same word. And he says, let no one, my, my translation says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. That's all one word. 
don't, maybe more succinctly, don't, don't let a false umpire be in your midst whose, whose judgment is judged according to delighting in, in humility and worship of angels and entering on things that you've seen. So there's this avenue in which, in which in the church can creep in. In this church at Colossae, it may very well creep in the idea that you have to look backwards on the law, that you enter, subjugate yourself to angels. This is true humility. This is, this is how you come to the table of the Lord. This is how you have peace. And Paul says... No, let no one defraud you. Let no one referee you that way because those aren't the rules of the table of peace. That isn't how we arrive in God's house at his table. Instead, he says that the, the, the rule enforcer, the umpire, is the peace of Christ. So clear as mud, right? He's given us this peace, and now, based on the peace of Christ... When we have complaints and we bear with one another and we forgive each other, an action must ensue. Let the peace of Christ umpire in your hearts. Let, let the peace of Christ referee. And before we move to the next, the next word there, there's a couple errors that we have to avoid when we talk about the peace of Christ refereeing among us. Because we can look at that peace and, and say, all right, that is the goal. Peace is the goal. And, and it's easy, right? If peace is, is it, peace is, is foundational, Jesus died on the cross, peace is the future goal and that he's bringing us this one new man together, then sure, we know what to do. Overlook all the sins. Peace is easy. Well, not that easy to overlook, but if you can manage that part, then, then the answer is simple. But there is a false kind of peace. I want to give you three examples. You don't have to, you don't have to turn to these. But three, three examples of a false offering of peace. And they come from slightly different motivations. So Micah 3.5, God is condemning a certain kind of offering of peace. He says, when they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they cry holy war. And so there is a kind of peace offered which is reflexive based on how you're doing with me. I, I, can, I can submit to the arbiter of peace as long as you're feeding me well. As long as there's meat within my teeth. So think about that offering of peace. Remember, you bring your offering to the altar and someone goes to the, some goes to the priest and then uh, to the Levites, God encourages them. He says, invite the Levites specifically because they don't have a portion into your home when you're celebrating this offering of peace. And so the Levite, who's the teacher of the village, can come in and, and cry to you, well, peace, you're feeding me, all is well. And so, so the preacher can stand in the pulpit and say, we're good, you're paying me, and keep the peace. Of course, that's not what that means for peace to arbitrate, the peace of Christ to arbitrate. And you can see it because the, the opposite is given. Against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they cry, holy war. This kind of false peace is evident because it's directed against those who, bring benef against those who don't bring the, the benefits that we want, that, that don't fulfill the desires of our heart. 
Secondly, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, he says again, and this is, there's similarities here, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit. With his mouth he speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets an ambush for him. So we can come to this table and we can hear the command of the Lord, let the peace of Christ arbitrate in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. And then we can proclaim that kind of peace in deceit. So what, what does that mean? We all come here, we're eating at a table, and by the very eating together, we're proclaiming the peace of Christ. We're proclaiming it to one another, amongst ourselves. If we do that while harboring bitterness, then we're guilty of this kind of deceit. We proclaim peace, all the while plotting against our brother. So the words have come out, but they're hollow words, they're empty words, they're vain words, they don't mean anything. Their tongue is a deadly arrow, it speaks deceit, and with his mouth he speaks peace to his neighbor. But inwardly he sets an ambush for him. So woe to the one who sits, who says, I'll overlook sin, I'll forgive sin, I'll come to the table with my brother, all the while counting it up, setting an ambush, laying the trap so that he'll see more, so that judgment will come. Woe to that man. Thirdly, there is another kind of peace, another motivation for peace, and it's also in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6.14, Jeremiah 8.11, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. Saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. We waited for peace for a time of healing, but behold, there was terror. And so there is a double a double application of peace that you already heard the, the other side of it out of Isaiah 57, in which we can proclaim healing. We can proclaim peace, peace, when there is no peace. What, what does that mean? God calls us to this table, and He calls us into His presence confessing our sins, and then remember Psalm 15, remember Psalm 24. How must we enter? Who can enter and ascend to the hill of the Lord? Those who have pure hands and a clean heart. Those who have set aside their hardness of heart, put it to death. So there is a false kind of peace which happened in the nation of Israel in which the prophets proclaimed peace because that's what they wanted the people to hear. It was a band-aid. It was a superficial healing in which you say to someone, peace, but they have no peace. They have no peace because, because they're not coming to Christ with pureness of heart. So we can't see into one another's hearts, but when, when sin grows and there's rebellious spirit, when there's division and fish shaking at God that exists in the body of Christ, it is a false peace to allow that person to come to the table. It's a band-aid. You can still eat. You can still be in the presence of God, but, but there is no peace. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we're not sinners when we come. We are. 
We're sinners, we're broken, and we need healing. And we come into the presence of the Lord, but we come, we come confessing. And as I mentioned last week, your confession won't be complete. You won't remember all of your sins. Our mind is deceitful enough that we downplay our sins. But there is a distinction between the heart of heart who say, I will not obey, and then come to eat at the table of peace. And Jeremiah says the message of peace then is false. There is no peace. Okay. So back in Colossians, 5, Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ arbitrate, govern, rule. And I want to point out that although in the context, the division, the complaints are between one another, and that's where we're, we're getting to, the first thing he says is, let the peace of Christ arbitrate in your hearts. Well, what is the force of that in your hearts? You consider the peace of Christ. Jesus says, my peace I give unto you. He's extending to us the benefits of the cross, one bought, redeemed. He says, my peace I give to you, I've forgiven, I've forgiven you. Let that peace first, first arbitrate in your heart. We're called to set our mind on the above things. What Jesus has done and where he's taking us to. So the, the goal, the prize for which this referee of the peace of Christ is arbitrating, he's bringing us unto that prize that Paul has already, already identified and defined for us in the book of Colossians. He defined it as the hope of glory. So he's bringing us forward to this glory which will be unveiled when Christ is revealed. We also are revealed with him. That's the hope. That's the prize for which we're striving. And the peace of Christ is the arbiter, the umpire that sets the, 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 the playing rules for how, how we go about pursuing this. And he says, first then, let the peace of Christ arbitrate in your hearts. So division comes within the body of Christ. And that, that's that's what we're talking about. And first, let the peace of Christ govern you in your heart. Remember, when we have a complaint or when we're complained against, we have a tendency to bring up the walls. The defenses come out when we're complained against. When we're the one complaining, we've already brought out the attack force. Usually, we're on the prowl. It's not, it's not, as I said, with the goal of the reconciliation of our brother, with the goal of bringing about the peace of Christ, but rather, it's to get that pound of flesh, to bring out our brother and, and humble him. Better word, maybe humiliate him. But first, God says, let the peace of Christ arbitrate in your heart. Let it control your heart. So something similar would be when John says in 1 John, persuade yourself, persuade your heart. Whenever you, have, whenever you see your brother in need, persuade your heart to help him, to be useful to him. To not, so, and, then, and then you won't be condemned. So here we meditate on, we consider then this peace which Christ is, is bought and he's bringing us to and let it arbitrate in us. There's a response then that's called for, a response of peace. 
this peace, this response of peace. So remember there's an objective peace which Christ has won and bought and demonstrates at this table is it arbitrates in our hearts. We have a response to it. There's an experience of peace that is subjective in that sense in which we grasp a hold of the peace of Christ and receive it so that then, then and only then will we feel peace. Remember what Paul says when this is not true of us. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, my peace I give unto you. Paul said, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then there's a promise, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehensions, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he calls us to come, come to observe the peace of Christ, and then to set aside all anxiety. And along with that anxiety, what drives it? A lot of our anxiety is driven by people. What they think, their complaints, our arguments, bring it to the foot of the Savior. Bring your anxiousness. Tear the dividing wall down and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, which is beyond us. It's outside of us. If you want peace, you cannot obtain it without going through prayer to the Savior and putting your anxieties at his feet. You will not obtain peace otherwise. Jesus gives it, but then he calls us to ask for it. Let the peace of Christ arbitrate in your hearts. And then he says, to which indeed you were called in one body. So now he's added this phrase, and the peace of Christ is what we were called to. So we can think about that peace as I've already described it as a foundation bought at the cross. The, Paul says it in chapter, in chapter 2, chapter 1. Through him, he's reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. That's done. There's a foundation in which peace is, is bought. The work of reconciliation is accomplished through Jesus, but now it's being extended through us. We were called to that peace, and we were called specifically to that peace then in one body. So now we, we get to the same kind of application. We're called for the peace to arbitrate in our hearts, the peace of Christ to arbitrate in our hearts, and then to remember that we're called to that peace as one people, one body. And then on top of all of this, be thankful. Well, what does that last command have to do with any of this? He's going to remind us three times here, verse 15, 16, 17. And in fact, even the household section ends with a reminder to be thankful. It's the, it, it's, it's the icing on the cake, or it's also part of the foundation. Meaning, just as Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. When we meditate on the above things, on what Christ has done and what Christ is doing, where he's calling us into glory, the response must be thanksgiving. If this is also a reflexive word. I've said this a lot of times, but thanksgiving, the root is the same root as grace. It's the same root as joy. So grace, joy, thanksgiving, they all go together. 
Grace is the, the offering forth of the favor of God's gift. Thanksgiving and joy are the response that comes from receiving that gift. And so just as, as the letters begin with grace and peace to you, as, as Paul began this letter, now we have the reflex. We've been, given, we've been given both that grace and peace, and now we're called to a response to allow the peace to arbitrate among us and to allow the grace to create the response of thanksgiving. It's only when we're overwhelmed with thankfulness that we'll rightly view ourselves, that we'll have the clothing that's humility of mind and guts of compassion that look on one another and want to act in gentleness and usefulness and patience for each other. So how do we decide? Remember I said there's a false kind of peace. And two of those examples are pretty easy. One is, is harder. Turn with me to Romans chapter six, 16. at the conclusion to Romans, and Paul says this, verse 17, Now I urge you, brothers, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own bellies. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Notice then that, as we already mentioned, peace is peace, is peace because, because God is crushing Satan. Because there is an act in which God judges sin. The two always go together. The covenant of peace that was given to Levi, remember, in Numbers 25 was given when, when the Midianite and the Israelite in sin were judged at the door of the temple. So this God of peace is crushing Satan under their feet. And in the middle of that, he calls them and he calls us to this kind of peace. But it is simultaneously a peace in which we have to keep in mind all that Christ has done, the blessing of peace that he's given us, and an eye, he says, keep your eye on those who cause dissension. So this peace doesn't create dissension. This kind of peace of Christ, which we're called to arbitrate against, it divides from dividers here in Romans chapter 16. And if you look closely, he says their God is their, their, their slaves of their own appetites and they're deceptive. Remember, remember those false kinds of peace. When they have meat in their mouth, they say, peace, peace. And they flatter with their lips and deceive with their tongues and say, peace, peace. So there is, there, there is a, a danger which we have to keep in mind. I think, however, that the predominant application for us is on the other side. There can be a danger within the flock 
of false teachers, of dissenters, of dividers, and we want to make sure that we are not counted among them. But more frequently, we fail on the side of allowing the peace of Christ to arbitrate. In looking at the table, being reminded of what Jesus has done, of the peace that he gives to us, my peace I give to you, which flows out like a river from a city with a king who sets a table for us to eat at, and he calls us in. Sinners who are forgiven freely, and remember, he calls us then to freely forgive. So I want to encourage you, as I did last week, but now with just a little bit more, and I want to encourage you as you think of one another, set your mind this way. Set your mind in love towards one another so that you bear the hallmarks of love that Paul reminds us of in 1 Corinthians. Love, what does it do? It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It keeps no record of wrong. Love is not arrogant towards one another. That means that love puts aside suspicions the love that's bounded by the peace of Christ for which we're striving, which Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, to make haste unto. That kind of love looks at one another and we put up with a whole lot. We bear with one another. We cover it up. We don't think about it. We, we don't bring it up to one another. Instead, it's covered absolutely, finally, fully. We believe in what Jesus is doing. We have a tendency to be rather pessimistic about this peace of Christ that he is bringing us into. It's already done. He's bought it at the cross, and he's bringing us into it that we are this one new man. We need to believe what Jesus has said, that he has made us one new man, that Christ is all and is in all. When we believe that and we think about one another and what Jesus is doing and we judge ourselves not with unequal weights and measures, not thinking the best of ourselves and the worst of our brother, and we believe that Jesus is doing the very thing he prayed for in John 17. He prayed, remember, to the Father that they would be one as we are one. That Jesus is doing this and will do it. Therein lies the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3. That we'd be transformed into conformity with his body of glory. That we'd be raised up and crowned with the glory that belongs to Jesus. It is as we are made into this new man. So, believe what Jesus has said. Put it to work by loving one another, by bearing with one another, by not suspecting each other of foul play. Instead, one of the applications that we ought to think about is the peace of Christ arbitrates among us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when you have a trouble with one another, don't go to the courts outside. Instead, we have, we have one another. And if it ends up that you're wronged, so be it. Be wronged. Because that's what our Savior has done for us. If you would stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this blood-bought peace of Christ that's given to us that we're reminded of, this, reminded of, that we're blessed with weekly in your presence. You give us grace and peace. And so, Lord, we pray that the response of peace in us, uh, that we would put our anxieties at your feet, 
that we would be quick to lay them down, to take up thankfulness, and then, Lord, we trust that you will give us that peace. Help us to love our brothers and to fix our eyes on you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.